this morning, before I begin, I, I just want to uh, uh, tell you that, um, announce, if you haven't uh, run into him already, Jason Pinza is back uh, from his sabbatical, so we're glad to have uh, Jason back. Um, so great. And I want to also acknowledge all of those this past couple of months here in the summer, as Jason has been on his sabbatical, um, the number of uh, volunteers that have stepped in and um, carried on in our student ministry and uh, taken them up north and, and taken them to camps and taken them to mission trips and had them over uh, for different events and Bible studies. So if you have been involved anywhere in the student ministry this summer, I'm going to invite you. Would you stand? Because we want to thank you for your ministry. So please stand. I know there's a number that, thank you, I know there's a number that we're not able to be here today that have also been involved, and uh, they have just been a gift uh, to us as a church family. Pastor Roger Thompson uh, tells a story about uh, when he was in high school. He says, I worked for a time at an armored car company, Brinks Armored Company in San Bernardino, California. My job was to take care of the coin that Brinks handles. We used to get 40 tons of coin from Las Vegas. A bag of quarters weighs about 80 pounds, $1,000 worth in that one bag. One day we got a call from Bank of America in downtown San Bernardino and they were in a panic. We got to have some coin in an hour, they said. Well, all the armored uh, trucks were gone, and so Larry, my manager, backed his 49 Ford pickup into the, into the bay. We loaded $25,000 worth of coin in that 49 Ford pickup. The thing was dragging. <laughs> That's over a ton. Larry said, hop in. We're going to go to the B of A. We hopped in. I'm in my T-shirt and Blue jeans, we drove up to the front of the Bank of America. We, we, we parked the truck there, and Larry said, hang on, I'll go in and get the dolly, and we'll haul all this stuff in. I'm whistling, <laughs> standing against this truck for 20 minutes. I don't have a gun. I thought, you know, if anybody notices what is in this common-looking pickup truck, I'm a dead duck. <laughs> of course, you can't carry 80 pounds very far. The treasure, people were just walking by, but they didn't see it for the commonness of the delivery system. <laughs> Jesus, in Matthew 13, tells us about another treasure, um, an even more valuable treasure than just a couple of bags of quarters that people walk by consistently. The kingdom of heaven. So I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 13 this morning. Matthew chapter 13. If you haven't been with us this summer, I got to tell you, we have been going through some of the different parables of Jesus, and it's been a great summer as we've been looking at uh, what lessons he has for us out of these parables. Um, this morning, we're looking at two short parables out of Matthew chapter 13. In fact, you will only find these two parables in Matthew, Luke and Mark, John. They don't have these two parables. Um, and uh, in fact, these parables, these two parables come in the midst of a, a whole chapter here, Matthew 13. You read the whole chapter. It's a, a lot of farm 
parables. And we find that same thing happening here in Matthew 13. Um, The first parable is a brief story of a farmer who steps off a road uh, to take a shortcut across a field. As he walks across that empty field, he kicks at a clump of dirt, and to his surprise, it uncovers an old brown leather bag. By the looks of it, the, the, the bag <laughs> had been there a, a very long time. It had been buried in that field, evidently. Um, and so curious, he, he bends down, and he digs out the bag, and he unties it, and he opens it up. He can't believe what he sees. <laughs> Gold coins, jewelry, precious stones of every color. I mean, this bag is full of, of treasure, more valuable than he had ever imagined in all of his dreams. And by the looks of it, nobody, including the current landowner, has any clue that this treasure is here. So, so that farmer, what he does is he, he bends back down and he reties that, that bag and then he reburies it and marks exactly the spot where he had found it. He turns around and now he heads home, but this time he's not just plodding along. This time he's skipping and he's running and he's, and he's laughing and he's smiling, uh, just full of, of joy, thinking about what he had found. He immediately decides that he has to buy that field. But how can he afford it? The only way possible is for him to sell everything else that he owns, uh, his own farm, his, his crops, his, all of his tools, uh, even his prize ox. And then he will go out and he will buy that field and that buried treasure. <laughs> It'll be his. Jesus tells that simple story in a single verse found in Matthew 13, verse 44. Look with me. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus then follows up that single story with another story, similar story. This time it's about a merchant. Um, a merchant who has a, a, a jewelry business. Uh, he fancied uh, pearls, and he knew perfection when he saw it. After years of patiently searching, he finally discovers the perfect pearl. Sure, there were other pearls in the market, um, and there were even other pearls of, of great value. But when he saw that one, <laughs> none of the other pearls could compare. This one was perfect. This one was flawless. So before anyone else found that pearl, he returns home and he he sells his whole jewelry business. I mean, lock, stock, and and barrel, all of it, including all of the other pearls that he had and, and precious stones that he owned. He sells it all, and then he goes back and he buys that one single pearl that was more valuable than all the rest. Again, this parable is found in Matthew 13, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. 
both the treasure and the pearl, Jesus tells us. They are pictures of God's kingdom, pictures of life with the king. Their message is essentially the same when you think about it. It's the fact that the kingdom of God is a treasure. It's a treasure of incalculable worth. Like the quarters on the back of, uh, of that pickup truck, most people, see, they, they don't see God's kingdom. I mean, they, they, they pass by it. They, they overlook it. They don't, they don't recognize it. Years ago, our, our family went to uh, Washington, D.C. on vacation, and um, this is when our kids were much younger, um, and uh, we, of course, went uh, through this, some of the different Smithsonian uh, museums, and, and uh, we happened to come to the one that um, had the, the Hope Diamond that had been put on display there for everyone to see and to admire. <laughs> Now, most of you know our daughter's name is Hope, so we found it quite funny to take a picture of Hope standing in front of Hope Diamond. Um, and so we got quite a, quite a laugh at, at that whole idea of this Hope Diamond out there in display, out there for everyone to see. But I got to tell you, God's kingdom is not like that. His kingdom is like the treasure that's buried in the, and hidden in the field. People walk over it all the time, and they never see it. God's kingdom is like that, that beautiful pearl that's in that marketplace that people pass by and, and, and go through the whole uh, list of different pearls, but they never recognize that pearl's infinite value. To them, Jesus and God's kingdom appears to be insignificant, to be uh, unimportant. In Jesus' farm story, the man's friend just thought he was buying a, a, a field. See, they didn't see the true value of that property. Even the seller saw it as just merely a field. He, he hadn't even bothered to look for uh, the treasure. But the man himself, he, he knew what he was getting. I got to tell you, like us, there are some people who will look at your life and they don't recognize the treasure that you have found in Jesus Christ. Now, these may be your friends, they may be your family members, they may be your co-workers. They might wonder why you give up your Sunday mornings to go to a church when, I mean, you could be sleeping in. They might wonder why you give your money to an organization that really doesn't, you know, offers so little, you know, in return. They may wonder why you strive to live by a set of morals and values that the rest of the world says is outdated and, and old-fashioned. To them, it's, it's just a religion. It's just a field. It's just a bunch of other pearls. <laughs> they don't get it, see? They don't recognize the treasure. The, the kingdom's value is hidden in the world. But to those who recognize Jesus and his kingdom's true value, they can't simply um, acknowledge its existence and, and, and walk on by as if it didn't exist. No, they embrace God's kingdom. They yield to God's reign in their lives. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, Jesus says, and those who really believe it and receive it through faith will sacrifice everything else in their lives for it. So here, I think, is a question that is hidden in the midst of Jesus' two stories. Um, The question is simply this. Do you and I, do, do we recognize the value of God's kingdom? Do you truly believe that Jesus and his kingdom are of infinite worth? Do you? That's what Jesus is asking us. The farmer, after he dug up that treasure, immediately recognized its value. It's the reason he had such joy as he headed off to sell all of his belongings, all of his stuff. The merchant, once he found that pearl of great value, he had no question what he, what he had to do. He had to go back and sell his business so he could buy that one single pearl. See, the only way you and I will go any further with God or the kingdom of God is when we recognize that life with God is a priceless treasure. It's not just another way to live. Um, It's not just another option that we have. (laughs) It's not something that we can just, you know, add on to our already full and busy lives that might give us a little extra benefit. No, we look at it and we see it for the value that it truly is. Are you familiar with the, the, the five C's of, um, of buying a diamond? I, I'm guessing a lot of uh, men um, here are, are familiar with that. Uh, young men, if you're not, you might want to listen up here. Uh, there's a little education here. There's five C's that they tell you. Uh, they tell you the worth and value of buying a diamond, okay? Uh, the, the five C's are cut, color, clarity, carrot, and the fifth one is a certificate. Um, from the Gemological Institute of America, okay? Uh, which basically tells you whether it's a qualified stone or not. Um, those are the five C's by which um, someone appraises the value of a diamond. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to change that a little bit. I want to give you five P's uh, of evaluating the value of the kingdom of God, Okay? This is how we know the kingdom of God is a priceless treasure. Let me run through these fairly quickly. The first P is peace. The kingdom of God offers us peace. Because we are sinners separated uh, from God, we are at war with God. But God, by his grace, invites us into a relationship with him because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Jesus on the cross, he paid my penalty. He, he paid your penalty. Our guilt is removed and we are reconciled with God so that we have peace with God today and for eternity. Priceless. Priceless. Second benefit of the kingdom is presence. The presence of God Those that enter into relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ receive God's Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of them day in and and, and day out. And do you know what God's presence, the Holy Spirit's presence in us does? It gives you wisdom to make decisions. It it gives you comfort when when life is difficult and, 
and challenging. The presence of God gives you fellowship and, and companionship in life. Third benefit, position. The kingdom of God gives us, each one of us, uh, a, a new position. You know, we're all trying to be somebody, right? To become somebody. Um, we, we go to work, we look for promotions and uh, uh, titles, and we look for awards, and trying to become significant. But the kingdom of God says, listen, you are not significant, you are not important because of what you have done, but because of what God has done for you. Your significance is based on the fact that God has sent his son into the world to give his life for you, to die, to win you, um, to win you to his father. That's your significance. You are now a child of God's. You are, you are now a, a brother of Christ. You are now in, in God's family. You are now a, a citizen of God's kingdom. <laughs> That's your position. Fourth P, purpose. Every person wants purpose, right? I mean, Rick Warren came out the other, uh, a long time ago now, uh, the purpose-driven life, right? <laughs> God says, listen, when I welcome you into, my, into a relationship with me, I, when I bring you into my kingdom, you get something to live for. You get to join me in what I am doing I, and, and I'm about changing the world. Fifth benefit. Fifth benefit of the kingdom of God is power. One of the great values in becoming a, a kingdom citizen is that all the things in life that I thought I could never say no to, <laughs> you know, all of those compulsions, all of those weaknesses in my life, I can now overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. God gives us the power to stand strong. God gives us the power to live victoriously. God gives us the power to walk with him day by day because the power of God is in me and it's changing me from inside out. You look at that list. I mean, the five Ps of the kingdom of God. I mean, who wouldn't want that? How valuable is that? But let me warn you something here. Because the enemy will try to sell you something short of this. The enemy will tell you that the peace with God, <laughs> it's not all that great. He'll try to convince you that you can get positioned by just working harder and by just, you know, stepping up your game. He'll whisper that, listen, you've got the power inside yourself. You don't need anything else. He'll try to sell you on the idea that you can get all of this just here on earth, just living for yourself. But I got to tell you, don't believe it. He's trying to sell, trying to short sell you the kingdom of God. See, Jesus is offering you and I something that is far greater than anything else. In fact, Jesus is offering you something that's far greater than what you even think you want. The kingdom of God is of ultimate value. So listen, if the kingdom of God is of ultimate value, then the question has to be asked, then, then why don't more people 
enter into it? Why do so many people turn their nose up to it or just, just walk on by it? And I got to tell you, it's because to gain the kingdom, it costs you everything. It costs you everything you have. Now, let me pause here for a moment because it's very easy at this point that we can get sidetracked by um, this, uh, these parables. You, you notice in the first parable, Jesus tells us that the farmer goes and sells all he has and he buys that field. And in the second parable, the merchant sold all that he had um, and bought it. He bought the pearl of great price, um, of great value. So we have to ask, um, then, then, then do we need to buy our way into the kingdom? Let me tell you right off the bat, no. <laughs> no. You can't buy into the kingdom. You can't bring anything to God to impress him. You can't bring enough money. You, you, you can't bring enough obedience. You can't bring anything to the table that makes God say, man, I want him or I want her on my team. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our salvation is a free gift of God. But, but, while it is free, no one enters the kingdom of God without cost. It's a free gift, but it's a costly free gift. <laughs> in Matthew 16, in fact, a few pages over, uh, Jesus says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Costly. Jesus is talking about being a disciple. He's talking about being a follower of Christ. He's talking about uh, being a, a kingdom citizen. To enter the kingdom of God, there is a cost. Um, neither one of these characters in these parables that Jesus told, neither one of them could have gained the treasure without, by, by at the same time holding on to everything else they had. I mean, they had to sell all that they owned, all that they had. They had to lose one kind of life in order to gain a better kind of life. It, it's what theologians might, we would call faith and repentance. We talk oftentimes about faith. We, we don't very often talk about the repentance side. But there are two sides of the same coin. Re, uh, faith is, is um, turning towards Jesus Christ and trusting him alone for my salvation. Repentance is turning away from my old life. So when I turn over the coin of faith, at the same time, I'm turning over the coin of repentance. In other words, when I turn in faith, I cannot not turn away in repentance. The very act of faith is saying that Jesus Christ is far better than my life of addiction. He's far better than my aspirations and dreams. He's far better than my alternative lifestyle. And while I will, yes, be in process all of my life, 
and I'll do this thing very incompletely, and I will fail oftentimes, my desire in turning towards Jesus is to lose what was behind. So what's that mean? Practically speaking, I mean, what does that mean? Well, it means that every day I have to choose what I will hold on to. I have to decide. Because I can't hold on to sin and gain freedom at the same time. I can't hold on to self-righteous efforts and works and gain acceptance by God through faith and grace at the same time. I can't at the same time hold on to my religion and gain a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I can't hold on to to worry and at the same time hold on to eternal security. I can't hold on to bitterness at the same time gain peace. I can't hold on to material happiness and gain spiritual contentment and joy. I can't hold on to unselfishness and and, and stinginess and at the same time and, and gain generosity. I can't hold on to fear and gain hope. I can't hold on to unwholesome and impulsive passions and gain self-control. I can't do it. No one can. Only faith is able to bring us into a relationship with Jesus. But when we turn and trust Jesus, what we're doing in that moment is we're also turning our back to our old self and we're waving goodbye to it. So long. (laughs) Farewell. From the moment of this, of his discovery, this farmer's life changed. The treasure, it captured his imagination. From the moment that that merchant spotted that perfect pearl, it became a a new reference point for his life. Every step that that they took from that time forward, they took with their newfound treasure in mind, and it completely redirected their hearts. Bottom line, friends, Jesus is offering something. He's offering each one of us something that's beyond compare and is worth all that you have. He's offering you more than the world. He's offering you the kingdom of heaven. Do you recognize the value? Do you recognize the value of the treasure, of the pearl, of God's kingdom? Do you truly believe that Jesus and his kingdom are of infinite worth? I want to close with a story that Thomas Schmidt, a college professor, shares about a woman named Mabel. He writes this, the state-run convalescent hospital was not a pleasant place. It was large, understaffed, overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who were waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark inside, smells of sickness and stale urine, I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never wanted to go there. And I always left with a sense of relief. It's not the kind of place one gets particularly used to. On this particular day, I was walking down a hallway I had not visited before, looking in vain for someone alive to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. 
This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases. Individuals strapped onto carts or wheelchairs looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of the hall, I saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek, and it pushed her nose to one side, dropped one eye, and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the center of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. And as a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when the nurses arrived, the supervisors sent them to feed this woman, thinking that if they could stand this sight, they could stand anything else in the building. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old, had been there bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. Thomas continues. He said, I don't know why I spoke to her. She seemed less likely that, than most people in the hall to be able to respond. But I put a flower in her hand, and I said, here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face, tried to smell it, and then she spoke. Somewhat to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a very clear mind. She said, thank you. It is lovely. But can I give it to someone else? I can't see, you know. I'm blind. I said, yes, of course. And pushed her in that chair down that hallway to a place where I thought I could find some other patients. I found someone, another patient, stopped the chair, Maybe held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. That was when it began to dawn on me that this was no ordinary human being. Later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned more about her history. She had grown up on a small farm and managed until her mother died. And then she ran the farm alone until 1950 when her blindness and sickness sent her to the convalescent hospital. For 25 years, she got weaker and sicker with constant headaches and backaches, stomach aches. Then the cancer came too. Her three roommates were all human vegetables who screamed occasionally but never talked. They often soiled their bedclothes and because the hospital was understaffed, especially on Sundays when I usually visited, the stench was often overpowering. Mabel and I became friends over the next weeks, and I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words were usually an offer of candy from a tissue box near her bed. Some days I read to her from the Bible, and when I would pause, she'd continue reciting the passage from memory. Other days, I took books of hymns and sang with her, and she knew all the words to the old songs. For Mabel, they were not, these were not merely memory exercises. She would often stop in mid-hymn and make a brief comment about the lyrics that she considered particularly relevant to her own situation. 
I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain, except in the stress she faced on certain lines in certain hymns. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful to a sense of wonder. And so I started going to her with a pen and paper and writing down the things that she would say. During one hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be uh, pulled in 10 directions at once with all these things that I had to think about. The question occurred to me, what does Mabel have to think about hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night? So I went to her and I asked, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie here? She said, I think about my Jesus. I sat there and thought a moment. <laughs> I thought about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. And I asked, what do you think about Jesus? And she replied slowly, and, I deliberately, and deliberately as I wrote, I think about how good he's been to me He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing an old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I'm sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I'm sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. Thomas concluded this way. He said, this is not fiction. Incredible as it may seem, a human being really lived like this. I know. I knew her. How could she do it? Seconds ticked and minutes crawled, and so did days and weeks and months and years of pain without human company, without any explanation of why it was all happening, and she lay there and sang hymns. How could she do it? The answer, I think, is that Mabel has something that you and I don't have much of. She had power. Lying there in that bed, unable to move, Unable to see, unable to hear, unable to talk to anyone, she had incredible power. See, I think Mabel had found that treasure buried in the field. She had found that pearl of great value. And she had found something beyond compare and worth all that she had. Have you? Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you indeed are that treasure. You indeed are that great pearl of, of infinite value. God, might our hearts be drawn to you. Might we catch that vision of what that means. Might we understand your great value more and more each day. God, thank you.
for your salvation, for your gift of Jesus Christ. Your son's precious name, amen.